Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Learning to live with it, whether it's a virus that won't go away or stimulus we can't afford to have go away. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Trouble with these deficits is uh, not so much the size of the deficit today when there's a lot of unutilized capacity in the economy. But are we on a course that carries this continuing along with these kinds of deficits as the economy does recover? And the economy is... Uh, has begun to recover. It's been recovering rather vigorously for some months. And it's certainly time looking ahead to begin seeing reducing that deficit. That was Fed Chair Paul Volcker talking about the need to address the growing deficit all the way back in 1975 when it came to a grand total of just $53 billion. This year, the federal deficit was $2.7 trillion in just the first nine months of the year. And that is before another round of fiscal stimulus. And that is what has caused some Republicans, like Senator Rick Scott of Florida, to resist too big a stimulus package, even though they agree we need to do something. Well, here's what's frustrating is we know we need to take care. And I want to take care of the people who have lost their jobs. Um, We know we need to take care of our small businesses and reopen our economy. And what Schumer and Pelosi are talking about is election reform, um, you know, postal service. You know, these are issues that we should talk about. But this is trying to get our economy open and take care of COVID. So it's it's and, and last week it was so frustrating because 
We weren't done. We knew the existing unemployment system, uh, the, money, the additional money that uh, we put up was going to expire. We had a bill. Martha McSally had a bill and Schumer blocked it. I mean, it's, it's like they're being disingenuous. They say, oh, we care, but they don't really. And what I'm concerned about is the unbelievable dollars that we're spending. Uh, we're going to have, what, about $27 trillion worth of debt, at least by the end of the year. Our Federal Reserve, just to keep interest rates down, has bought about 60% of our net treasury issuances this year. Gold's at record prices. I think the market's telling us to watch out. We got a lot of debt. You got to be careful how you're spending your money. And up here, nobody cares. It's, it's like spend, spend, spend. And then our states are saying, oh, we haven't been able to balance our budget. Maybe we can use the coronavirus as an excuse to get some money out of the federal governments. We can put the money down on our pensions, pay for our excesses, which means that if you're a Florida taxpayer and you said, I, boy, I got out of Cuomo's New York because the taxes are so high, then Cuomo's come back and said, no, 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 no. I want money out of the federal government. Well, that means Florida taxpayers, every taxpayer is going to be paying for this. So I think we've got to be take care of the unemployed, help our small businesses, get our economy reopened. We need to have liability protection and then don't waste your money. Watch every dollar and hold China accountable. I mean, this is caused by communist China. It's run by, as you know, the Communist Party of China. And whether it's not allowing TikTok to be used here or holding them accountable for all of our costs or, you know, holding them accountable because they're taking away the basic rights of Hong Kong citizens or putting a million people in prison for their religion. We've got to keep holding them accountable for for their bad acts. So as you suggest, Senator, there's a lot of money we're talking about. There are a lot of zeros after the numbers as a practical matter. One of the biggest uh, gaps, it seems to me, is that assistance to the states. It looks to me like the Republicans and Democrats basically agree there should be some help for the schools to get the schools reopened, but for state assistance generally. Why is it the Republicans feel so strongly? Why do the Democrats? We all agree the states are hurt in part by the pandemic, don't we? Well, I, I think we all understand that we should help our states. We did. We, we gave them over, we gave state and local over $500 billion, and we gave them loan access to another $500 billion. So we've given them a lot of money. Now, I was a governor of Florida from 2011 to 2000 through 2018. I had four hurricanes. The federal government never said, oh, Governor Scott, let me give you all the money for your cost with regard to these hurricanes. They never did that. They, they paid a portion. They helped us with sheltering. They helped us with debris pickup. But they didn't cover our lost revenues. And what these states are saying is, I thank you for the money on uh, on the coronavirus because we're we're paying federal taxpayers are paying 100 percent of it. But we want you to take care of our unfunded pension plans. We want to take care. of Oh, New York sold some some um, climate change bonds. Help us with that. Help us things that we would never, never pay for. So I want to be helpful uh, to our state and locals for the coronavirus. I do not want to pay, uh, and I don't think Florida taxpayers should pay for uh, the excesses of New York or California or Illinois or New York who never live within their means. But Senator, does that mean that you might be in favor of some further assistance to the states if there were strings attached to make sure it went for things specifically related to the coronavirus? Here's what we did. We did, Ron Johnson, Ted Cruz, and I did a letter to all the governors and asked them, okay, We've given you we've given you over five hundred billion dollars. You and your your cities and counties. How have you spent it? How much money do you have left? All right. And guess how many guess how many responded? Less than ten. They just want the money. And we we gave them money for Medicaid. Medicaid costs are actually down. We gave them money for their schools. Actually, school costs have been down so far. Now 
we were talking about helping our schools, you know, with money to reopen. All right. I'm all in favor of helping our schools. But shouldn't we say, tell us what your real needs are? How much of the money we've already given you have you already spent? How have you spent it? But no, they don't want to give us any information, but they want us to give them more money. I mean, you would never do that. You, as a person, you'd never do that. And as a business, you would never do that. Why are we doing that as government? That was Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Coming up, it's all about the virus, and we hear from the man who spent a lifetime battling pandemics. The general in charge of fighting this one, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Over 750,000 people are tested each day in the United States for COVID-19, but there are delays in getting some test results back, which limits their effectiveness. I spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, about the testing needs for the country. Well, the people who are responsible for the testing, namely Dr. Uh, Admiral Girard and his colleagues, uh, they give some statistics that a substantial proportion of the test come back in 24 to 48 hours, mostly 48 hours. There's a certain percentage that take five, six, seven or more days. You are absolutely correct. And I can't credibly defend that and say that's a good thing. It's not, because if you have to wait that long, particularly, particularly if the testing is done to really determine if you are infected and would you be infecting somebody else that's an unreasonable amount of time to wait, and it kind of obviates the underlying reason for doing the test, which means we need to do better. We need to get 95 or more percent, 99 percent of the test that need to be done back within that period of 24 to 48. No excuses. It needs to be done. Shouldn't that be done on a federal level as a practical matter? I mean, it may be problems in enforcing things like mask wearing and things like that. Why don't we have a national policy, a national approach to testing? We have money in the stimulus bill that's being debated right now on Capitol Hill for that. Are we doing enough as a federal government to fix this problem? Yeah, you know, what we depend on here in the United States is the private enterprise, the 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 the, the, the various independent companies that make it and distribute it. And that's just the system, the way it works. I'm not sure we do have public health groups that get uh, testing from the public health system, but the ones that really drive it are the private enterprise. And is that effective? Is that the way we're gonna beat well, this thing, I, as you say, over the long time? I mean, uh, obviously we need to do better because I mean, even though we are much, much better off now than we were in the beginning where we had some missteps. At the end of the day, when you make phone calls and you hear that it's taking X number of days to get back, it clearly means we need to do better. What is the role of information in fighting this pandemic as a practical matter? I mean, and particularly consistent information, because we are sort of getting conflicting messages from the parents. So if you forgive that analogy, we kids out here. I mean, for example, President Trump on hydroxychloroquine said, you know, I really believe it's very effective. He went after Dr. Burks. What can we do to get everybody on the same page? Because we don't know. We're not infectious disease experts. We're trying to figure out how to comply. We need a consistent message. How can we get to that world? I think when you're dealing with things that are purely medical, I mean, remember, 
when you talk about the situation we're in now, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we have other considerations that have to do with economic and political and other things. I have nothing to do with that. If you're talking about a medical question, listen to the medical experts. That's the advice. And you won't get a, you will not get a conflicting message from the medical experts about things like hydroxychloroquine, about what the results of a vaccine trial are, or what the results of monoclonal antibody. So when it comes to pure public health medical things, listen to what the medical experts say. How is President Trump getting his medical information as a practical matter? Because there seems to be some conflict on things like hydroxychloroquine and not limited to that. Is there a vetting of the information that, that he has access to? You know, I don't know that because I certainly don't have privy to all of the input into the president. The only thing that I know is what we do, and we do that through the task force, through the vice president. The vice president then briefs the president or the president invited us all to the Oval Office to brief him in person. So, so Dr. Fauci, uh, let's look into your crystal ball right now. And assuming we don't have an effective, fully effective uh, vaccine in the next 18 to 24 months, what is a trading floor on Wall Street look like? What does a school look like? What does a public event look like? You know, I got to tell you, David, I believe and I, and I and I sound like a broken record, which is good because I want to sound like a broken record. And that is there are things that we can do without shutting down the country that can get those numbers down to a manageable amount that you could do things that would be very productive and enhancing of the economy. We should not think of either lockdown completely or caution to the wind. There's a middle ground that we can do of the five or six things that I mentioned to you that will allow us to prudently and carefully open up the economy. It's not all or none. I think there's a misperception that unless we either lock down or open up, there's nothing in between. There is something in between. The issue is, and I, I, I wanna give this a point because I really am going to, over the next days to weeks, keep repeating it over and over again. We gotta make sure that all the links in the chain of the United States of America as a country, bringing that virus down to a level that we can function where we don't have to lock down, where we can revitalize the economy, we can do it, but all the links have got to work. You know, I, I, I use, you know, I'm trying to use analogies or metaphors that people understand. You could have a lot of people, a lot of states doing really well. When you have segments of the population that don't appreciate that even though they may not get sick from the virus, if they are careless and allow themselves to get infected, they're propagating the outbreak so it doesn't go away. And that kind of obviates all the good things that other people are doing to stay safe. I use the analogy only because I learned this from my daughter. My daughter, when she was in college, was on the varsity of a division one crew team in college. And I used to go to those matches and you're an eight person boat. The only way you win the race when every rower on that boat is doing it correctly, you get one rower on the boat that either accidentally, as they say, catch a crab and go off or not doing it enough 
the boat doesn't win. So it's the same thing. We're all in this together. Unless we all do it and do it correctly, we can get it down to the point where we can open. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NIH. Coming up, the challenge of returning students to the classroom through the eyes of someone who ran the Chicago school system and then the U.S. Department of Education, Arnie Duncan. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Arnie Duncan has devoted his life to education. He took time off from college to work for his mother's after-school program on the south side of Chicago, became CEO of the Chicago Public School System, and ultimately served as Secretary of Education under President Barack Obama. So he knows both the importance and the challenges of returning public school students to the classroom this fall. Of course, all of us, educators, my wife and I, his parents, all our kids, all of us desperately want to go to a physical school, to be in person. Um, the challenge and the terrible challenge is that that's not always safe to do. And what we haven't done as adults across the country, David, in March and April and May and June and July, and now we're starting to August, what we haven't done to make our community safe, which would in turn make our schools safe, means that many places are going to have to open only virtually. Um, some places may be able to start with a hybrid, and very few places are going to be able to open with children and adults there physically. And it, it's, it's bad for kids. It's bad for education. Um, but we have a country have lacked discipline. We've lacked a commitment to science. We haven't followed what's worked in other countries and it's, it's just had a, a, just a terrible effect, a destructive impact um, on education, on kids, and ultimately, obviously, on the COVID death rate in the country, which is unacceptably, unacceptably high and still rising. Yeah, and Arnie, I'm struck by the fact that I think that New York City is the only major school district right now still holding out the possibility of really reopening physically. Your old school district of Chicago has said they can't do it right away. At the same time, when we talk about remote learning, that's one thing. Let's be honest, for upper middle class, upper class people with their fancy MacBooks and things like that, a lot of support, a lot of Wi-Fi, there are a lot of urban schools school districts across the country that, that really struggle with remote learning. Can we really teach children in some of these large urban school districts through remote learning? Let me answer that directly one second, but just for people to understand how complex all this is. Um, schools aren't just places of education, they're social safety nets. And so we've been doing a weekly call since the pandemic started with school districts and with nonprofits across the country on food distribution. 
And throughout this, from day one, school districts have continued to feed children, their families, and the broader community tens of millions of meals every single day. It's just been an extraordinary, heroic effort. Um, secondly, we have to take care of children's uh, social and emotional health. And we've seen districts pivot very quickly to telehealth. So counselors, social workers, teachers, psychologists, checking on those kids that were already struggling. And we, unfortunately, David, as you know, we have so many families now in financial distress, people who were living paycheck to paycheck and doing okay, and their world's been turned upside down, trying to take care of those kids. And then finally, yes, we have to figure out how to educate children. And districts, again, are working for all the lack of federal leadership, which is so you know, infuriating to me. At the local level, we're seeing extraordinary compassion and empathy and thoughtfulness and, and urgency. So here in Chicago, they've given out 100,000 devices to children. In Boston, 30,000. In San Antonio, there's a very poor district. They have 49,000 uh, students. They've given out 47,000 devices. Um, places like South Bend, Indiana have parked school buses in the poor communities that are Wi-Fi enabled so that students can have access to that. And for better or worse, what this pandemic has done, David, is it's lifted, it's sort of, you know, ripped a scab, ripped a Band-Aid off these gaping wounds of massive inequities across our society. And yes, of course, in our educational system. And we have to make sure children can learn anything they want, anytime, anywhere. We have to close the digital divide and use this time of crisis to do something much better for children, whether it's in the inner city, whether it's in Appalachia, whether it's on Native American reservations. So, Arnie, as you point out, we're not where we should be. We're not where we would want to be. At the same time, we are where we are. The question is, what do we do at this point? It strikes me that there are real challenges with remote learning for the child, but also for the supervision at home. A lot of kids, you can't just put them in a room and have them do it. And also for the teachers. It can't be the same teaching remotely as it is in person. How, what can we do to help that process? Because it must be a different process. So a couple of things, and again, all this stuff is three-dimensional chess. It's a, you know, it's a new world and unprecedented time, so let's just sort of walk through it. Um, clearly for our babies, our pre-K, K, first and second, our little guys, um, it's, it's really, really hard. So as we think about opening physically, whether it's at the start of the school year or whether it's a couple of weeks you know, into the school year, um, I would prioritize bringing those younger children back. And you know, my, my children, you know, freshman in college and a rising junior in high school, um, the online stuff is, is easier for them at that age than for our babies. So we have to try and get those younger kids back into physical buildings. If you have to use the high schools uh, for the little guys to, to, uh, to open that up. Secondly, you know, when the pandemic started, we were thrown into this virtual you know, learning world you know, very, very quickly without preparation. Um, teachers have had um, a, you know, a couple months now to, you know, to try and work on this, to, to have professional development, to get better at it. Um, it is still imperfect. You know, from, you know, just as a, as a parent, as a dad, um, some of my children's classes worked really well. Others didn't. Um, the large discussions uh, via Zoom are hard, but we have the Zoom breakouts of, you know, three, four, five kids talking and working together. Um, that works better. But we have to move into this world. Um, many children, probably the majority of children in this country, are going to spend somewhere between, you know, half their time and, or all their time, at least for the start of the school year, um, in this situation, in this virtual learning uh, world. That was Arnie Duncan, managing partner of the Emerson Collective. Coming up, contributors Larry Summers of Harvard and Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston 
from Bloomberg Radio. It was a week for hanging on. Economic numbers, though positive, fell far short of pointing us back to where we'd been. You know, there was some pullback of reopenings and so forth. And yet, and yet, we still got uh, 1.8 million with a big decline, almost a full percentage point drop in the unemployment rate. Leaving us grasping for a fiscal boost out of Washington that leaders so far have not been able to deliver. I think there's a handful of very big issues that we are still very far apart. The other side is going out there making it like they're there for children and, and uh, people in need, working families, which couldn't be further from the truth. And this week, we saw a shadow cast over the one clear bright spot in the markets, equities. When President Trump expanded his tech battle with China to a threatened ban on TikTok and WeChat. We want to see untrusted Chinese apps removed from U.S. app stores. Oh yes, the virus. The virus, it just kept on coming. With numbers of cases leveling off in states like Florida and Texas and California, maybe. But deaths kept moving up. And the spread of the disease expanded to new states like Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin. It was a big week on Global Wall Street, and to help us try to understand it, we welcome now our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, former Treasury Secretary. So, Larry, let's start with some economic numbers, the jobs numbers that came out at the very end of the week. Better than expected, 1.7, 1.76 million jobs added. Does it change our view about the path of this recovery? I don't think at all. Um, it, cha- it confirms what we sort of uh, knew. It refers to a survey that was taken uh, several weeks ago. The higher frequency numbers are not uh, as strong. And there are a variety of questions that make the unemployment rate in the 10 range almost certainly an underestimate of uh, how bad things uh, how bad things are. So I think the basic view that we're now in for a long slog, until something puts the health uh, problems uh, in the rearview mirror. Nothing in this number changes uh, that picture. Nothing in uh, data that's, that we're seeing suggests that the health problem is moving to the rearview mirror. And the main development uh, this week is growing concern that the economy is going to run into a stimulus pothole because Congress is going to take us off the stimulus uh, cold turkey. And the other main concern this week is at a moment when the world needs to be coming together around a common uh, problem, the risks of major economic conflict between the United States and China are going up. So it's hard to feel better at the end of the week than one did at the beginning of the week. It's hard to feel better today than one felt uh, several weeks ago. Uh, There's no strong tendency for things to be moving in the right direction. If anything, they're probably moving in the wrong direction. And joining Larry Summers and me is now Jillian Ted. She is the chair of the Financial Times editorial board. Welcome, Jillian. Good to have you here. I want to start, however, with Larry. Larry brought up the question of stimulus. We were supposed to get it this week. So, Larry, where are we with the stimulus? Look, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be following very closely whatever the ins and outs in Washington are. I'd stick with the economics. It is crazy 
to be withdrawing huge quantities of economic support right now when the economy is in the process of turning over because of the spreading of virus. Yes, there are some legitimate issues about the size of unemployment insurance checks, but for every individual who is not working because of inadequate un uh, unemployment, because of excessive unemployment insurance, there are probably five who are not working because we don't have satisfactory childcare arrangements and financial support. Yes, there may be some tax disincentive uh, effects, but they are small compared to the lack of basic support for taking care of the education of the kids of working uh, families. This is uh, that rare case in economics where demand and supply come together. We need more demand. That means injecting money. And we need more right. supply, and that means right. supporting working families. Right. We're doing neither. Yeah. It's a huge error. So, so, so Jillian Larry says we definitely need more stimulus. This time you have a very strong column out. All your columns are strong, let's be honest. <laughs> this week in the Financial Times, talking about it's not just the fact of stimulus or the amount, but also how it's done. And, in fact, what we've done so far is I will use the word regressive. Well, in a sense, we don't just need more stimulus. We need smart stimulus and smart support as above all else. Um, and it's very understandable in some ways that when the COVID crisis hit, policymakers policy dashed to provide support and they didn't have time to spend hours or days or weeks passing all the fine details. But when we go back and look what happened with something like the Payment Protection Plan, the PPP program, which was supposed to be supporting small business in America, what is now becoming clear is that actually it was distributed very, very unevenly. The New York Federal Reserve released a fascinating paper this week, which essentially shows that not only did many of the most needy areas in America, particularly in metropolitan areas, not get the money fairly, but also the black businesses, black-owned businesses, received a much smaller proportion of the money than white-owned business, and they've also been going essentially failing at twice the rate of white-owned businesses. So the good news is there's still quite a lot of money left in the PPP pot, about $130 billion. Um, people are talking about more programs going forward, and as Larry says, it's pretty clear that more support will be needed, right. but the bad news is that people aren't talking about ways of actually making it much smarter at the moment. So, Larry, what about it? You've been in those positions of power in the White House and near the White House. Can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Can we both stimulate the economy and correct some of the growing inequalities in the country? There's a uh, poor people versus rich people dimension uh, of that. There's a racial uh, dimension of uh, inequality. There's a gender uh, dimension of, uh, any, of inequality. There's an immigrant uh, dimension of inequality. There's a depressed regions dimension of inequality. And we should be, addre we should be addressing uh, all of them. But I do think that uh, we need to be, and I think there should be set-asides in each of the categories I just uh, referred to. I would just caution, though, that maintaining a strong economy 
is ultimately the most important form of stimulus. And that when people try to design overly elaborate, extremely complicated models for targeting, what inevitably happens is that the whole thing slows down and less money uh, moves and comes out. So I think that we do need to target better, but if we don't stimulate the economy, the recession's going to get worse, and that's the most regressive, anti-poor, anti-black thing that we can allow uh, to happen. So let's let's respond to all these concerns, but let's not let the best be the enemy of the good. Exactly where I was going, Julian. That I actually learned as a Russian proverb, don't let the best be the enemy of good. Are people coming up with some way to avoid the best being the enemy of good and still not have the stimulus be, I will call it again, regressive? Well, one certainly hopes so. And there are very practical things that can be done. I mean, to go back to the issue about why black-owned businesses are failing at twice the rate of white-owned ones, the numbers are 42% versus 17% that have essentially stopped operating since COVID hit. Huge distinction. Something very practical you could do is say, let's put the PPP money out through fintech platforms because black-owned businesses are far more reliant on fintech platforms because they have very weak relationships with mainstream traditional banks. So that's a very simple practical step that could be taken and one hopes it will be taken going forward. But perhaps a bigger issue people should also be recognizing is that the type of actions the Federal Reserve has taken have also been incredibly regressive in the sense of inflating assets which are overwhelmingly held by the wealthier parts of the population and essentially creating a wealth gap that's widening between the wealthy and the poor. Many people, including Larry, would say the Fed had no choice. They had to go and do this because they had to do whatever it took to use that famous phrase to get the economy going. But that point about the regression of assets prices rising needs to be debated and understood, if not now, then in the future, and policy tailored to actually try and do something to counteract that. But are people debating it other than in your column in the FT? Uh, Jillian, are you seeing people no. debating and coming up with ideas? I think, well, in terms of the issue of central bank policy and the impact on rich and poor, there's only one central bank, to my knowledge, that's actually had the courage to try and measure what happened in the first rounds of QE back in 2009, and that's the Bank of England. And it released a report showing that almost all the gains had gone to the wealthy fit wealthiest 5% of the UK economy when QE was first unleashed. Now, QE is dramatically bigger, so you have to guess that the gains are even more extreme. But no, that point has not been discussed. And I would agree with Larry. We can't sit there and try and design the perfect policy. We can't let perfect be the enemy of any kind of action. We're going to thank now Larry Summers, our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He's, of course, the former Treasury Secretary, as well as now at Harvard. And Julian Tatt of the Financial Times with her great column, on how we're doing a stimulus. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.